Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast contains quoted usage of a racist insult. Listener discretion is advised. It's just before four in the afternoon on Tuesday the 19th of March 1907 and Modesto Varaschetti is descending into the dark earth beneath the Coolgardi goldfields. The 32-year-old Italian, who goes by the nickname Charlie, isn't rostered on to work this shift, but he's filling in for another miner who hasn't shown up. Modesto will be operating a handheld drilling machine that uses compressed air pumped from the surface to bore into a quartz seam of the West Australia and Eastern Extension mine. This mine is 1,200 feet deep and comprises 12 levels. Modesto will be working on the number 10 level, so 1,000 feet down. He rides a skip on a cable down the vertical shaft to the number three level and then walks the sloping main tunnel that intersects with the lower levels. Reaching the number 10 level, Modesto walks some 250 feet along the narrow rock corridor until he reaches a rise, also known as a stope, which is a smaller, shorter tunnel cut sharply up into the rock. Using timbers for steps, Modesto climbs 30 feet to the quartz seam. Here, He'll stand on a little wooden platform as he excavates ore that will be hauled back up to the surface. Majesto's alone in his little candlelit cabin as he gets to work with the drill machine and he's soon engulfed in noise and silica dust. He's been working for about half an hour when there's the clattering of timber hitting rock. Peering down along the stope, Majesto sees a candle box swept along by a torrent of water. It's almost inconceivable in Coolgardie, but the mine is flooding. Modesto clambers down the stope timbers and splashes into a river surging along the number 10 level. Where's everyone else? 
Why has no one warned him? These are questions for later because right now Modesto has to save himself and he wades towards the main tunnel. But he's battling a rapidly rising debris-filled wall of water and his only chance is to retreat into the rise. Modesto races back, climbs the timbers and perches on the platform. It's only a couple of minutes before the number 10 level below him is filled to its ceiling. And after that, the water starts coming up the rise towards Modesto Varaschetti. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Gold was found in Coolgardie in 1892. Two years after that, a prospector named Richard Bonney found two nuggets seven miles north of this new boomtown. Combined, these nuggets weighed just six ounces, but within 24 hours, a tent camp of 400 people sprung up out of the red earth. Thus was born the town of Bonnyvale. Mines were sunk, houses, shops and hotels erected, and the town was officially gazetted in 1897. A decade later, it had a population of 750. Bonnyvale's Westralia and Eastern Extension Mine was by then the largest mine in the Coolgardie area and it employed some 160 men. Many were from the north of Italy, like Modesto Varaschetti, who was born in Gorno in Italy in October 1874. Gorno is in the Rizzo Valley, about 40 miles northeast of Milan, and it's a picturesque village of Renaissance architecture set in hills above deep valleys. For centuries, the men of Gorno had worked the mines. Born to this life, Modesto became a miner at the age of 13. He grew into a dark-haired man who stood 5'8". Modesto Varaschetti married a local girl named Maria, and she was to go on to bear him five children. Miners from northern Italy were willing to travel immense distances to earn money to provide for their families. And as they'd supposedly worked cheaper than Australians, the British companies that owned Western Australian gold mines would advance them fares to make the long sea journey down under. Modesto came to Australia in February 1900. He was reported to have worked in Clunes, Victoria and at the Bulong Mine in Western Australia before coming to Bonnyvale, north of Coolgardie. Though he was half a world away from Maria and their children, Modesto had two brothers who were also working the mines, one right there in Bonnyvale and the other at Canauna, about 12 miles east of Kalgoorlie. Modesto also had the tight-knit Italian community around him. Still, he must have missed his family and Miss Gorno, which, with its steep green hills and centuries-old buildings, was a world away from the harsh red Coolgardie Desert with its hastily erected mining outposts. Immigration records at Ancestry.com.au show Modesto arriving back in Australia in 1903. Presumably this was after he'd returned for a visit with Maria and the children. Sadly, it would be the last time he saw his wife. In 1905, he got the news that she'd died. Their five children were now motherless. Modesto returned home, setting the kids up with family and the Gorno community, before returning to Bonnyvale around October 1906 to keep working and earning money to send home. Bonnyvale and the Westralia and Eastern Extension Mine were located between two ranges. Such geography might have posed a flooding problem elsewhere. But Coolgardie, at least in the 15 years of European occupation, had proved so dry that Westralia didn't even have pumps installed. 
in all of 1906, there had been just 967 points of rain, that is, 9 and 2 third inches in 12 months. March of 1906 had seen just one day of rain, a mere 4 points, or 1 25th of an inch. By the time you'd blinked, it had evaporated. On the weekend of March 16th and 17th, 1907, there were heavy rains across the Westralian goldfields. But Coolgardian surrounds weren't touched. That was until Tuesday afternoon when clouds built up around Bonnyvale. These rare thunderheads were otherworldly, billowing white and grey clouds that bled into blues that bruised into blacks, the spectacle all the more vivid against the parched red landscape dotted with thirsty green mulgars. Bonnyvale citizens watched the clouds encircle their town, and then, just before four, as Modesto was on his way to the mine, the rain started drizzling down. More than usual, but nothing to worry about. Shortly after Modesto went below, though, the storm broke. The rain was torrential, around eight points per minute, and over the next two hours, Bonnyvale was hit by four inches of water, more than all of last year. Fierce rivers formed and surged down those ranges to carve canals yards across and feet deep into the landscape. These floodwaters funnelled to the lowest points, the main shaft and tunnel of the Westralia and Eastern Extension Mine. Every minute, thousands of gallons poured into the earth. The Westralia Mine was filling up, with more than three dozen men underground, including 20 who were deep down at the number 10 level. Alerted to the unfolding disaster and ordered to evacuate, these miners fought their way up against tons of water thick with mud and debris. Men got up the main shaft in sludge-filled skips while others escaped up via passes, which were narrow ventilation and ore transport tunnels cut vertically between levels. By 6.30, the storm had passed. Assessing the damage, mine officials found that Westralia was flooded beneath the number 9 level. The good news was that a roll call revealed everyone had made it out alive. Everyone except Modesto Varischetti, last known to be working a stope on the number 10 level. Miners who'd escaped from down there could only hope that their mate had somehow gotten to a higher level. Yet, if he had, why hadn't he surfaced yet? Maybe he was injured or had become lost in old workings. A search of these tunnels didn't find Modesto. Their mate had almost certainly drowned down there in the darkness. Almost certainly, because all the miners knew there was a chance he'd survived in an air pocket. Being a miner in 1907, when safety came second, tended to sharpen a man's mind to such scenarios. Yet, in this case, being alive in a bubble was a crueler fate than a quick death by drowning. If Modesto had survived, then he would now likely die slowly in the dark from starvation or suffocation long before the mine could be dewatered enough for him to be rescued. At seven that night, Kulgadi's inspector of mines, Josiah Crabb, heard the news, and he was at the mine an hour later. Dozens of miners stood around, holding out hope for their mate, ready to do anything so long as there was a remote chance that Modesto could be saved. Inspector Crabb and mine manager Mr Rubisham were of the same opinion. They had to do whatever they could as fast as possible. While they tried to locate a pump, men were ordered to clear the main tunnel and shaft of debris. 
They also had to get the sludge filled skips off the damaged cable, repair it and then attach big steel buckets that could be used to bail out the mine. At around 11 that night, the first water skip was sent down. It had a capacity of 200 gallons and could make a return trip every three minutes. The second skip was operational three hours later. In the first nine hours, they bailed 36,000 gallons of water. And this reduced the level in the mine by nine inches of the 100 feet required. Dozens of miners worked through the night to dig trenches so water brought to the surface was channeled away from Bonnyvale and didn't find its way back into the mine. A pump with a capacity of 5,000 gallons an hour had been located at Coolgardie Brickworks. It couldn't be on site and installed until Thursday night. Even with that pump and two skips, taking out as much as 13,000 gallons an hour, Inspector Crabb calculated that the water wouldn't be lowered from the number 9 to the number 10 level for 9 to 10 days. Modesto Varischetti had thanked God that the air pressure in the rise had stopped the water from coming all the way up and drowning him like a cat in a bag. Modesto had candles with him, which he rationed so he had a little light sometimes, but he hadn't brought any lunch, so he was soon hungry. Somewhere in those first hours, he used a gimpy hammer to knock against the walls of the stope. He and his Italian countrymen often did this to communicate basic information to each other about where they were in the mine. But now when Modesto knocked on the walls, he got no response. On Wednesday morning, miners down on the number 9 level had the same idea. Far below them, Modesto Varischetti heard this noise. He grabbed the hammer and banged 10 times. He was alive, on level 10. He waited. Then the reply. 9 knocks. Modesto banged 10. The men kept signalling in this way so the miners could close in on his location until they stood directly above him. 70 feet of rock between them and Modesto at the top of his stope. 70 feet of rock and hundreds of feet of water. Relief that he was alive was tempered by frustration because there was nothing more they could do to communicate to Modesto. Even if there had been, it would have been of no comfort for him to learn that he couldn't be reached for 9 or 10 days. While down on the number 9 level, Inspector Crabb noticed that bubbles were rising up from one of the water-filled ventilation passes nearest to where Modesto was entombed. That was no good. Air was escaping from Modesto's cavern, finding its way through fissures in the rock and rising through the water. As air pressure decreased in Modesto's cavern, water would push up from the number 10 level and drown him. Inspector Crabb hoped that the drilling machine Modesto had been working with was still attached to its hose. He ordered that compressed air be pumped in at 30 pounds per square inch, which he calculated was enough to keep Modesto's refuge from being flooded. Modesto Varischetti had air and water, however muddy, but how to stop him from dying of starvation? Inspector Crabb had a bold idea, or, according to Smith's Weekly, his son did. Quote, The previous evening, Crabb had brought home a picture book for his son, Frankie, aged five. In this book was a picture of a diver in full dress. The inquiring mind of the boy was responsible for drawing from the father an explanation of the use of the diving dress. 
When Frankie heard the tragic story of the miner, he said, Father, why don't they send down a man in one of those funny dresses? That article appeared in Smith's Weekly in 1922. Newspaper reports from 1907 don't mention young Frankie. Instead, Inspector Crabb would tell reporters that he'd had the idea a diver might reach the rise and use a pole to push food up to the entombed miner. Inspector Crabb didn't know anything about diving, so he sought a man in Coolgardie who did. This was brewery owner Charlie Vincent. Old Charlie now made a living supplying lion beer to the goldfields, but in his younger days, he'd been a diver. Hearing the problem, Charlie said such a dive was possible, though it would be extremely difficult and very dangerous. Nevertheless, old Charlie volunteered his services if no other divers could be found. Inspector Crabb sent a telegram to Western Australia's Minister for Mines, Henry Gregory. The inspector advised the minister of Modesto Varaschetti's predicament, and while acknowledging the chances of a rescue were remote, he requested that divers be sent immediately with all the necessary equipment and 1,000 feet of air hoses. Learning of this, the Coolgardie Minor newspaper on Thursday had this to say, quote, There is at least a chance of this being a success, but that is all. However, the experiment is worth trying when there is a life to be saved. The obstacles in the way of the diver, who is not a miner and knows nothing of the nature of the workings in a mine, carrying out this idea appear to be many. Modesto's best chance would be if authorities could find a man who specialised in two of the world's most dangerous occupations, deep earth mining and deep sea diving. A man who didn't just have those two death-defying skills, but who was prepared to use them, risking his life for that of an Italian. That was a big question. Should British lives be put on the line to save this stranger? While Italians were allowed to live and work in the country under the white Australia policy, they were widely hated for not being true European whites and for undermining the economy with their cheaper labour. An article found in Perth's Sunday Times in July 1904 gives the tenor and the terror of these times. While the article was ostensibly about an Italian man who'd been acquitted of assault, most of the piece was given over to pure racist hatred. Quote, For some weeks before the general elections, the dwellers in this state must have read and heard about the Italian invasion. This outcry against the Dagos, who for years past have been slowly but surely getting a firm grip here as mining workers, first arose at Leonora, where the number of Italians employed on the Sons of Gualia was so great as to create disturbances and riots. It went on. This Italian invasion is one of the insidious, subtle dangers now threatening white Australia. There was more and far worse. Quote, the presence of the Italian in our midst is a serious danger to our morals and to the safety of our women. This is no indictment of the Italians as a race, but is directed solely against the scum who are imported from the Adriatic littoral by the cheap capitalists of this country. Every week, almost every day, affords fresh evidence of the licentious lust of the awful alien in Australia. And the Italian is at least as dangerous in this respect as any of the foreign scum that infest this country. These immigrants were terrible when they came from metropolises such as Naples, quote, where the lowest fiends on earth congregate in the dark slums and fetid alleys of that crowded city. 
but they were even worse if they came from country regions, places like Modesto's hometown of Gorno. Quote, There are no lower humans in any civilized country than the agricultural worker of Italy. They are human beasts, pure and simple, beings without remorse, without shame, without hope, full of hypocrisy, greed, avarice, cruelty, and superstition, human hogs that live only for their bellies and the gratification of their carnal passions. For the lower grade of the Italian peasantry know no morality. They are utterly unmoral. They are as casual as the beasts of the field in their amorous advances and careless of result. The Sunday Times piece concluded, quote, In those cities, the poor live in hovels, in styes. They revel in filth, feed on husks, and gratify their passions with careless promiscuity. In the country, manners and morals are even worse. Sociologists declare that Italians are the most degenerate race in Europe. They are lost to decency, to morality, even to civilization. And it is from the lower depths of Italian cities, from the poorest and therefore the vilest of Italian country centres, that the mining capitalists of this state are importing their cheap Dago labour. In my searches of contemporary newspapers, I haven't found anyone openly in print advocating that Modesto Varaschetti should be left to die in the mine. Yet trying to save him was proclaimed as an example of British nobility. Newspapers repeatedly made reference to the rescue attempt being carried out even though he was an Italian, an alien, a stranger. But all the good intentions would mean nothing unless a brave minor diver could be found. Frank Hughes ticked all three of those boxes. This 45-year-old looked like an ordinary chap. He had a roundish pleasant face with receding dark hair. He was of medium height and build, and like just about every other man in this story, he rocked a big moustache. Frank Hughes had the sort of face you might expect on the other side of a bank clerk's window, rather than behind the thick glass of a deep sea diver's helmet. But for many years, Frank had been an underwater man, though lately he'd taken to working underground. Born in 1861 and raised in Langerland, North Wales, Frank Hughes had become a sailor when he was young. He didn't lack for courage, the story going that when he was 22, he'd saved the daughter of the governor of Hawaii from shark-infested waters. He gave up the life of an ocean-going master mariner when he came to Queensland in 1886 and the next year married a woman named Martha Cobble. Frank and Martha lived in Maryborough and had six children. In the years around Federation, Frank had worked as a diver for the Queensland government's dredging operations. About 18 months ago, he'd come to the Australian goldfields, taking work at the South Kalgoorlie mine at Kalgoorlie. Frank was on his way to start the afternoon shift on Thursday the 21st of March when a mate said he'd read in the newspaper that day that an Italian was trapped underwater and underground at Bonnyvale. They needed a man who was a miner and a diver. Frank went to his underground manager and said he was available should the inspector of mines need him. The manager said, well, go to the government office and volunteer. Frank laughingly replied, what, and lose a day's wages while I hang around? If they wanted him, they knew where he was. Frank's manager called Inspector Crabb's office and he was told, go get him. By 2.30, Frank Hughes was on the train to Coolgardie. It had all happened so fast that Frank only knew the basics. When the train reached Coolgardie, he learned just what it was he'd volunteered for. 
Frank would have to descend from the number 9 level 100 feet to the number 10 level. Using the drilling machine's air hose as a guide, he'd have to walk some 250 feet along that level. Where the hose veered up would be the stope. Then he'd use a telegraphic pole to push food in a sealed container up to the entombed miner. Said like that, it sounded quite straightforward, but Frank knew he'd be in total darkness most of the time, slogging his way through silt and sludge in black water strewn with timbers and other debris. He'd be doing this in a bulky diving suit that weighed 180 pounds while trailing hundreds of feet of lifeline and air hose. And with every fathom he descended, the water pressure would increase. If Frank should be overcome by exhaustion down there, or get trapped or tangled up, his chances weren't good. While in Kilgardie, where he collected a telescopic pipe and a consignment of condensed food, Frank spoke to a local reporter. Frank wondered whether it might be a better idea for him to take a second diving suit to the Italian, put him in it, attach him to an extra valve on the air hose, and then conduct him out. This, he realised, posed difficulties, for there was no way of knowing Modesto Varaschetti's mental or physical state. If the man panicked or collapsed, he might kill them both. In any case, Frank couldn't do anything until diving gear arrived from Perth. He said to the Coolgardie miner, I hope they will send up sufficient air pipes. The dive would be tough, slow and dangerous, but Frank thought the difficulties weren't insurmountable. He told the Coolgardie miner, quote, I'll do my best. That's all a man can do. It had been Wednesday night when the Minister for Mines, Mr Gregory, had received Inspector Crabbe's telegram asking for divers, equipment and 1,000 feet of air hose. The Minister wasted no time. By Thursday morning, two divers and diving assistants were found at Fremantle and every available inch of air hose was collected. A special train was organised. The locomotive would pull a single coach for the divers, assistants, equipment and 800 feet of hose that had been located. The train would also have a brake van and a coal truck. 350 miles of track from Perth to Coolgardie was to be kept clear so the train could make the journey as quickly as possible. A crowd cheered the train as it steamed out of Perth Central Railway Station bound for Coolgardie. This journey usually took 17 hours. The driver did it in about 13, with the train arriving at 4am. Tom Hearn, the senior diver who'd volunteered, was also senior in that at age 57, he was considered an old man who was nearing the end of his, quote, allotted span. Photos showed a gaunt-faced, grey-haired and grey-bearded fellow who, despite his advanced years, was still working as a diver at the Fremantle Harbour. Born in 1850 in Kent, Tom had come to Australia when he was 15. In September 1888, he was acclaimed a hero when, during construction of the Queen's Bridge in Melbourne, a fellow diver was sucked into eight feet of silt at the bottom of the Yarra. Tom immediately went to his mate's aid. Spotting the man's gloved hand sticking out of the sludge, he dug him out and brought him to the surface alive and well. The other diver arriving at Coolgardie was a man named Jack Curtis, also employed on the Fremantle Harbour. A buggy took these men and their gear to Bonnyvale, where they conferred with Inspector Crabb, Frank Hughes and another man who'd come from Kalgoorlie and who was only identified in the press as Diver Fox. Frank's idea to take a second diving suit to Modesto Varaschetti was nixed as being too dangerous. 
it was decided that Jack Curtis would supervise the diving operations from the number nine level, ensuring men were pumping air and conveying and receiving signals to the divers below. As the diver with mining experience, Frank Hughes would be the one to try to get food to Modesto Varischetti. Diver Fox would be his second. Rather than use the main tunnel, Frank would descend to the number 10 level via a flooded pass into which ladders had been forced. While this pass was narrow, where it opened was closer to the rise, shaving valuable yards off the journey. At the bottom of the pass, Frank would wait for Diver Fox. Once Diver Fox was down, he'd be in charge of making sure Frank's life and airlines didn't get tangled as he made his way along the tunnel to the rise. By sunrise on Friday morning, the Westralia shaft was surrounded by men, women and children who'd come to see the brave divers suit up and go down the mine. This crowd included Modesto's brothers and many other Italian miners. At 8 o'clock, the divers were lowered with their gear in the skips to the number 9 level. Their assistants screwed them into their heavy diving suits and those bulbous helmets with their air pipes and tiny glass faceplates. At 10 o'clock, Frank went into the water. The pass was so narrow, he was at risk of getting stuck. He squeezed his way down, cleared mud and boards out of his way as he went. Making it to the number 10 level, he signalled up to Diver Fox to follow. Frank waited and waited. Diver Fox didn't appear, so Frank went back up. At the number 9 level, he learned Diver Fox had been unable to get past an obstacle, so they'd try again. Frank went back down into the darkness, for his electric lamp needed to be conserved. At the bottom of the pass, he waited and waited, and again Diver Fox didn't show. Up he went to number 9. Now he learned that Diver Fox's leg, quote, had gone crook, and the man was out of action. Diver Fox was to be pilloried by the public for this perceived cowardice, and he would leave Bonnyvale promptly. Old Tom Hearn now took his place. While this man had a lot of diving experience, he'd never been in a mine before. But he had Frank Hughes's back at the bottom of the pass. In that darkness, Frank made his way along the number 10 level. While these passages were called levels, they were only horizontal enough for men to walk them and for ore to be hauled. There were rises and dips, so Frank would one minute be stepping through silt up to his ankles and the next be in the muck up to his hips. By the time the drilling machine's air hose curved up into the rise, Frank had, thanks to those false starts, spent most of the past two and a half hours underwater. He was nearing exhaustion and badly in need of fresh air. Frank had to turn back. Before he did though, he wanted to offer Modesto Varischetti some sign he wasn't alone. Frank shook the air hose going up into the rise three times. There was no response. Frank gave it another shake and was delighted when this time a shake came in response. Frank and Tom retreated and descended. Reaching the number 9 level, they relayed the news that the rise had been reached. This information was then sent to the surface, where the crowd erupted into cheers. The Hosannas redoubled when Frank got topside. He told the crowd he needed to rest, but would dive again at 4pm. Having now assessed the situation on level 10, Frank believed it was possible for him not to just push food up on a pole, but for him to climb the rise to offer Modesto Varischetti much needed comfort by personally delivering the relief package. 
or as personally as he could, given he wasn't able to remove his helmet, and even if he could make his muffled voice audible, he didn't speak Italian, and Modesto had very little English. At four o'clock, Frank went back into the water. He took with him supplies that had been put into a sealed metal tin. These included condensed food, some diluted claret, candles, an electric light, a slate and a pencil. On the slate, written in Italian, were the messages courage and will be rescued soon. Familiar with the territory now, Frank was faster and he reached the rise in about an hour and a quarter. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Modesto Varaschetti had now been trapped for 72 hours. Not that he knew that because he'd lost track of time. Rationing his candles meant he'd spent most of that time in the darkness. The humidity and his gnawing hunger made sleep difficult, and the compressed air being pumped into his cavern made his head ache. But Modesto knew that something was happening because a few hours ago the pumping operations had stopped. Sometime after that, someone or something had made the air hose shake three times. When it shook a fourth time, Modesto shook it back. Then, nothing. The pumping had started again, and then stopped again. That might have been an hour ago, and now Modesto thought he could see light coming up in the darkness. Down in the water below him, there was a glow, getting brighter and bigger. Modesto startled and shouted in shock and surprise as the light broke the surface and became dazzling to the point of blinding. Behind the light, a bulky shape. Standing, dripping, glinting. Frank Hughes would remember it this way, quote, When I reached the rise and got out of the water, I shone the light upwards and saw Varaschetti standing in a half-crouching position with both arms outstretched. He was peering into the water and was clearly alarmed. I could hear him shouting, even through my helmet, but I could not distinguish his words. He turned away from me, obviously in terror, but I beckoned to him to come to the edge of the stope. He did so after a while. Frank handed over the supplies. Quote, I offered to shake hands with him, but he did not seem to understand. I shook hands with myself and then held my hand out again. He understood me and came down and gave me a firm grasp. Then I left him, and as I disappeared into the watery depths, I saw him shining the light into the water, watching my exit. Despite Modesto's disappointment at being left alone again so soon, he now at least had food and the knowledge that rescue attempts were underway. Reaching the surface with the news they'd gotten food to Modesto, Frank and Tom were cheered heartily by the crowd. At 3pm on Saturday, well-wishers watched Frank and Tom descend again. Frank took Modesto more food and some clothing. He also carried a zinc tube containing a letter from Modesto's brother and a typewritten document written in Italian that comprised coded signals. A certain number of knocks to the men on level 9 would mean, I want candles, while another set of knocks would say, I am well. 
Unfortunately, though, during this visit on Saturday, Modesto Varaschetti got the mistaken idea from Frank's gestures that he was going to be taken out of the mine tomorrow. There was no chance of that. By Saturday night, the bailing and pumping efforts had reduced the water level by 23 feet. They weren't even a quarter of the way yet. On Sunday, Frank Hughes visited Modesto again with more food, including roast beef and potatoes, and an Italian newspaper to help him pass the time. Frank waited while Modesto wrote a letter by the light of an electric lamp. When the divers got back to the surface, an anxious crowd gathered. With an Italian miner translating, manager Mr. Rubisham read the letter Modesto had just written to his friend Joe. Quote, Dear Joe, I have given you to understand through signalling that I do not want anything to eat because the man that come has told me yesterday that was the last day. Therefore, if I have to stay here until tomorrow, bring me some food because I have nothing more left. Mr. Rubisham next read a second letter Modesto had written before Frank had arrived, and this gave an insight into the anguish the man had been experiencing. Dear Marangoni Giuseppe, I cannot tell you or make you understand how it happened. There is no man that can form an idea at what speed the water was rising from the time I first noticed it. The water was rising so quickly that in a minute the drive was full and I made up my mind absolutely that God wanted me in the other world and that he was tired of me. I was prepared to accept death. I wish to tell you to be quick that I feel as if my bones were dying. Dear mates, have pity on myself. I send you my greetings. Farewell. I am your miserable friend. Farewell. Modesto Varaschetti. Between all of you, help me. Whatever his other concerns, Modesto's worries about food had to be allayed by Monday's menu, with Frank Hughes describing to a daily news reporter that day's food delivery. Quote, Half a fowl, two pounds of ham, a tin of macaroni, slices of bread and butter, several potatoes, a couple of bottles of diluted claret, half water, half wine. Frank would also take in a pound of candles, plenty of matches, a recharged electric lamp and some dry clothes. What he also wanted to give Modesto Varaschetti was heart and hope. Quote, I was pleased to be able to revive his spirits. If I find today that he is losing heart, I will visit him oftener. I am not going to fail in my attempt to rescue him. On that Monday dive, Frank took Modesto a letter from his mate Joe that explained the rescue's progress. When Frank returned to the surface, he carried Modesto's reply, which was read to the crowd. Quote, my dear friends, I am going to give you my news. First of all, I will let you know that God is with me always and gives me courage. I will be glad to again see the light of heaven. God will give me courage till I again see the daylight, the sunlight, and to see again my old beautiful country. As to my feeling bad, I let you know I do not feel anything, only I feel that my strength is diminishing every day. The next part of the letter was illegible before it continued, quote, I will be glad to again see you all. My dear affectionate friends, my heartfelt thanks and greetings. Modesto added profuse thanks again to all, including the mine administration, before signing off, quote, Adieu, farewell to you all. Greetings, I am your friend Modesto Varaschetti. P.S. Always with the thought that I will see you again as soon as possible. Moved by these words, the crowd gave Modesto three cheers. Ever since it had been revealed that Modesto was alive underwater and underground, the media interest had been intense. An early newsreel company was trying to get access to film the rescue. 
photographers hovered to take pictures of Frank, Tom and others getting into their gear and descending the mine. The most outrageous attempt to document the proceedings came from a, quote, lightning jerker. That was the derogatory nickname for a telegraph operator who volunteered to don a diving suit, go into the depths and up into the rise, trailing a telegraph cable the whole way so he could send and receive messages from and to Modesto Varischetti. The Coolgardie miner decried this ridiculous proposal as being likely to lead to the telegraph operator's death. Yet that newspaper tried to do an interview with the entombed miner by getting Frank Hughes to include among his deliveries a sheet of questions written in Italian. Modesto declined to answer these. Instead, he sent up another letter to his mate Joe. Quote, Dear friend Joe, I do not know in what manner I can make you understand how much gratitude my miserable heart has gained by reading your letter that you are so hard at work relieving me from this tomb. Modesto again conveyed his hearty thanks to everyone trying to save him, but it was clear that he still thought he might die, because he asked to be forgiven for all the trouble he'd caused and implored his brothers and friends not to forget him. The entombed miner's plight was a big story, yet after the initial contacts with him had been made, progress was slow and at the mine's surface there wasn't a lot to see. That gave a reporter from Perth's Daily News time to acquaint himself with Modesto's mates, and on the 27th he wrote, quote, Some may say that Italians are a craven race, but the Bonnyvale Italians met this morning by the Daily News representative gives the lie to that slander. They are a fine type, emotional, courteous, hard-working, and bubbling over with words of praise and admiration for Diver Hughes. When Frank Hughes went down that day, he took with him a letter from the Italians which told Modesto his ordeal was almost over, that it was, quote, nearly time for you to come up to see again the heaven. Modesto Varischetti had now been entombed for eight days. On that Wednesday, as the rescue inched closer, the Daily News' coverage became more extensive to the point where its reporter was cabling updates in close to real time. Bonnivale, 2pm. The divers are dressing for this afternoon's descent. Bonnyvale, 2.30. Hughes, before descending today, stated that it was his intention to remove his faceplate and talk to Varischetti. He was warned of the great danger he would run, but persisted saying that he must cheer the Italian up. What will you say? Well, not much, as he does not speak English to any extent. I'll call him by his nickname and say, Charlie, the water is going down fast. I'll soon come down to take you out. I will not stay very long, but I must cheer him up. Poor fellow. Frank admitted there was great risk in taking off his faceplate. Quote, But I'll order the air pump to go ahead slowly, and if anything goes wrong, I'll cut the lifeline and take my chance. I'll take a stick below to give the faceplate a good screwing up, and Varischetti can help me if necessary. A man must take risk. What's the good of calling yourself a diver if you don't? The Daily News reported that the crowd was too spellbound to cheer. A bystander was heard to say, quote, Hughes is one of the pluckiest and bravest men who ever lived. And a woman added nervously, he may never come up. Frank Hughes didn't return at the expected time. The crowd waited anxiously, hoping he hadn't met an accident. Then, at 4.30, he emerged from the water left at the bottom of the pass and descended to the number nine level. This news was relayed to the surface, much to the relief of the crowd. The delay had been caused by his lengthier chat with Modesto and the time it took to screw the faceplate back into the diving helmet. 
As promised, Frank had told the entombed miner that he'd take him out on his next visit. There were now just 24 feet of water remaining to be pumped and baled. On Thursday the 28th of March 1907, residents of Bonnyvale and Coolgardie came to the mine to see the final act in this momentous rescue. And people also travelled from Kalgoorlie, Boulder, Menzies and even Perth to witness the miracle. The Daily News said, quote, There is probably not a man in Australia today who is not waiting for tidings of Varischetti's release. Initially, it was hoped Modesto would be brought to the surface in the morning. The question, how's the water now, was said to have been asked 1,000 times by people before breakfast had even been finished. At 7am, the water was down to the top of the number 10 level. At the surface, the atmosphere was festive, if formal. The Daily News, quote, Women donned their best dresses, little children appeared in gala costume, and men dressed up in starched linen and Sunday suits and repaired to the shaft head shortly after breakfast to await the arrival of Varischetti at the surface. The heroes of the hour were applauded heartily. That today was the day was clear because Frank and Tom wore ordinary clothes. They'd be walking in without diving suits and air hoses to get Modesto out. At 8.30, they descended to the number 9 level. The water was still too deep. In an hour, they thought it'd be level with Frank Hughes's chin, and he'd go after that. Minutes ticked by, and impatience increased. Then, a blockage was found in the shaft at the number 10 level, where Frank had intended to bring Modesto up, so instead, he'd bring him up via the narrow pass he'd been using to get down from the number 9 level. That debris in the main shaft had also stopped water from draining, so Inspector Crabb arranged for explosive charges to be used to clear it. The Daily News reporter sent a telegraph update to Perth every few minutes, so we have a blow-by-blow. -blow. At 10.45, Inspector Crabb sent word up from number 9 level saying he thought it was better to bring Modesto to the surface after 5pm because he feared the man's eyes might be affected by the sunlight after spending so long in the dark. The new plan was to bring Modesto up to the number 9 level so he could rest in a bunk and adjust to breathing normally after living in compressed air for more than a week. At 10.47, Inspector Crabb ordered the skips to be held until the blast. At 10.51, the charges were detonated and bailing recommenced. The water was inching down again. At 1.30 that afternoon, Frank had another concern, and that was the effect of putting Modesto into cold water up to his neck in his weakened condition. He thought it would be better to wait until the water was at hip level. At 2.05, Frank told the press that no matter what, Modesto Varischetti would be out by 6 that night. Just in case his medical condition meant that he had to be rushed to hospital before the sun had started to set, sunglasses and wool were sent down so his eyes would be protected. A doctor named Mitchell also descended to the number 9 level to be on hand when Modesto was brought up. The Union Jack was raised over the mine's wooden poppet head. Ropes were used to cordon off the shaft to keep onlookers clear because when Modesto came up, he was going to need space and air. To get the best views, people climbed the poppet legs, clambered onto dumps and went up ladders. At 3.30, Frank walked through neck-high water along the number 9 level and climbed up into the now-drained rise. He gave Modesto a meal and they chatted as best they could. Modesto was strong and was eager to get out. The water had gone down three feet since the morning. It wouldn't be long now. Frank Hughes had to leave and return a few times, but on the fourth visit, he said to Modesto, quote, Well, what about it, Charlie? 
Shall we try it? Modesto said, yes. Frank felt his pulse. It was strong and steady, and he judged that the man was up to it. Frank and Modesto descended the Stopes timbers into the level and started for the pass. Frank was to say, quote, But when the water got up to his waist, he seemed to lose his strength and collapse, and I had to carry him the rest of the way to the chute. When we got to the chute, old Tom there pulled him up and I pushed. In this fashion, they got Modesto Varaschetti 100 feet up to the number 9 level. A message was sent to the surface confirming the entombed miner was entombed no more. At 5.55, a signal from the number 9 level indicated that they were coming up. Modesto's mate Joe and his brothers looked down into the shaft and saw the skip rising. Mr. Rubisham ordered everyone to stay quiet. As the skip came level with the surface, the crowd saw Modesto with Frank and Tom on either side supporting him. The freed miner was wrapped in blankets, his eyes covered with wool and dark glasses, and his dark beard growth made his pale face look even more bloodless. One newspaper report said he looked like a corpse. But Modesto Varaschetti was very much alive. Frank and Tom and a couple of volunteers lifted him from the skip and to a trolley. Just as nine days earlier the storm had broken, now the crowd could remain silent no more, and they unleashed cheer after cheer. Modesto was taken to the mine manager's house, his trolley followed by a large number of people from the crowd. Others circled the divers to offer congratulations and handshakes. Modesto was given food and examined by the doctor, who said he seemed well if suffering from shock. The entombed miners' miraculous rescue was hailed by newspapers across Australia as a historic act of British heroism. The federal member for Coolgardie wrote to the acting Prime Minister, Sir John Forrest, to say that if Frank Hughes's brave acts had taken place on the battlefield, he'd be receiving the Victoria Cross. Tom Hearn, Jack Curtis, Inspector Josiah Crabb and the Minister for Mines, Henry Gregory, were also rightly praised for their efforts in a rescue that had been made possible not only by individual heroism, but by collective setting aside of egos and the red tape of officialdom. Pietro Porcelli, the famed expatriate Italian sculptor who'd made Perth his home, wrote to the Daily News' editor, quote, Sir, is it not astonishing? The most marvellous piece of rescue work ever in this wide world is undoubtedly that just accomplished at Bonnyvale. After saying such bravery must send a shiver through every sensitive soul, Pietro Porcelli offered that the rescue, quote, will never be forgotten in the history of this world. That Frank Hughes should always be remembered was also the theme of celebratory verses written by prolific Western Australian poet Jack Sorensen. One stanza went, A hundred million men who speak our tongue, a hundred million cheers uplifted high, as Varaschetti from the blackness swung into the great glad light of God's own sky. A hundred million hands would grip his own, a hundred million eyes grow moist and dim, for him who stormed that sepulchre of stone to bring a brother from its horrors grim, and round the world wherever mankind meet, in something less than savagery of soul, wherever there are human hearts to beat, his name shall ring reverberant pole to pole. Reflecting on the Great Rescue, the West Australian newspaper's editorial hoped there would henceforth be greater harmony between the races. Quote, 
But all is well that ends well. Love's labour has not been lost, while the country is richer for the display of altruistic sentiment which prompted the heroic measures which were adopted for the extrication of Varaschetti, albeit an alien and a stranger within our gates, from his awful predicament. After praising his rescuers, the paper said Modesto Varaschetti might change the way that people viewed the Italians. Quote, the fortitude displayed by the victim himself under circumstances of peculiar and almost unique horror is a great tribute to the Italian character. The race to which Varaschetti belongs is popularly credited with an excitable temperament and with less of that self-control and cool courage commonly attributed to people of more northern climes. But the Bonnyvale disaster has shown that, in a great crisis, the modern Italian is anything but a neurotic degenerate and can, when the occasion demands, exhibit a passivity and fortitude which would not disgrace the best of his ancient Roman prototypes or the bravest of Britons. The newspaper said that all Italians had been raised in the estimation of Australians and it hoped these sympathies would, quote, break down some, at least, of the antipathies which, unfortunately, have existed between Australians and Italian workers on our goldfields. In the weeks that followed, Modesto Varaschetti, Tom Hearn, and especially Frank Hughes were the subject of much public interest, though all were to learn how fleeting such fame could be. On the morning of the 4th of April, a couple of thousand people gathered at Perth Railway Station to see Modesto Varaschetti arrive by train. Somehow, most of them missed him getting off his train carriage. Catching up to him as he got into a buggy to be driven to the Palace Hotel, whose owner had given him a free stay for the publicity it would bring, well-wishers pressed forward, but Modesto was still too weak to respond with any enthusiasm, and he appeared relieved when his conveyance whisked him away. Within a few weeks, it was reported that Modesto had already been forgotten and had been left sick and broke by the Palace Hotel's owners who'd lost interest in him. Modesto Varaschetti would soon be back working in the gold mine. Frank Hughes and Tom Hearn were fated at numerous dinners and receptions in Perth and beyond. Both men came off very self-effacingly. They reportedly turned down monetary rewards, though they did accept gold medals presented to them on behalf of King Edward VII, the King of Italy, the Royal Humane Society, and the Italian societies of Western Australia, New South Wales, and Queensland. On the 26th of April 1907, Frank Hughes was received at Federal Parliament in Melbourne, where he was introduced to Acting Prime Minister Sir John Forrest and about 20 or so other Federal members. Another tribute of a sort came six months later when a play called The Land of Gold opened at the Criterion Theatre in Sydney. This was actually a melodrama about a Western Australian gambler whose wife runs into her supposedly long-dead American adventurer husband. This Yankee fiend sweeps the down-on-his-luck gambler hubby into a criminal enterprise that sees him arrested only to escape and flee to Bonnyvale. There, he assumes the identity of Antonio Valletti and becomes trapped underground in the third act until he's rescued by Frank Hughes. The Bulletin magazine was savage in its critique of this tacked-together Farrago. Quote, the show's main handicap is its awful ponderousness of phraseology. The pruning knife would be inadequate to cope with most of the lines. They call for a circular saw or dynamite. The Bonnyvale rescue bought Modesto Varaschetti another 13 years, but in the end, mining did kill him. He died in Kalgoorlie Hospital on the 3rd of September 1920. Modesto was just 45. The cause of death? Silicosis. 
the miner's lung disease caused by years of inhaling quartz dust. As for old Tom Hearn, who was supposedly near the end of his allotted span, he kept diving until 1912, and he worked for Fremantle Harbour for another eight years after that. In the early 1920s, with his health failing, which newspapers would blame on diver's palsy caused by the pressure he'd sustained during the rescue, Tom moved in with his daughter in Fremantle. Now in his 70s, he enjoyed going to the pictures on a Saturday night. Tom Hearn died on the 11th of March, 1924, at the age of 74. Frank Hughes was forgotten surprisingly quickly. By 1909, his health had also deteriorated. Frank was afflicted with rheumatism, which, again, at least in the newspapers, was linked to his repeated rescue dives at Bonnyvale. Whatever the cause, Frank had to give up diving to take a job in railway construction. Two years after that, in September 1911, the now 50-year-old had, as the papers put it, fallen upon evil days. Frank was now too sick to work on railway construction, and his family faced destitution. A public appeal was launched in Melbourne, but few remembered Frank or cared enough to chip in. A deputation went to see the Prime Minister, Andrew Fisher, who, before entering politics, had worked as a miner on the Queensland goldfields. Frank's supporters weren't after a monetary handout. What they asked was that a job be found for him. Prime Minister Fisher listened and said that if ever there was an Australian hero, then his name was Frank Hughes. He said he was dismayed that the fund had been ignored. Quote, I thought that it would only be necessary to whisper abroad his deed to secure him recognition that would provide for the rest of his life. Mr Fisher asked that the matter be left in his hands. Whether it was the Prime Minister's doing wasn't reported, but after that Frank got a job with the Lands Department office. Four years later, in December 1915, Perth's Truth newspaper ran a big story headlined, Diver Hughes, a forgotten Australian hero, sick, sore and sad, in the twilight of life. Frank Hughes's rheumatism had become so bad that he could no longer work at all. The Truth article struck a plaintive note about his diminished life in Brisbane. Quote, he is residing in O'Keefe Street, Ipswich Road, and will be glad to be visited by any of his friends who can make it convenient. He is very fond of reading and will gratefully accept any gifts of literature which may be forwarded to him. Truth was indignant that this man had been forgotten. Quote, How many Australians are there who could answer offhand the question, who is Diver Hughes? Not many, we dare aver. Yet, less than eight years ago, the name of Diver Frank Hughes was on every lip. Truth also made this dark prediction, quote, If Frank Hughes, who accomplished one of the most notable and isolated feats of daring in our midst is to be forgotten, what guarantee have the brave soldiers who go to the shambles that they, in their huge numbers, will not share the same fate in a few years' time? In March 1916, the Daily Mail in Brisbane reported that Frank's rheumatism was now so bad he could no longer read because he couldn't hold a book. After that, the hero of Bonnyvale slipped out of the newspapers once again. That was until the 1st of June 1919, when Perth's The Sunday Times recalled Frank's rescue of Modesto Varaschetti in a big story on the front page of its supplement. The article reprinted that Jack Sorensen poem and noted that his hope for the diver to never be forgotten had not been realised. On the very same day that this article appeared and Sunday Times readers were being reminded of Frank Hughes, the man himself drew his last breath in Brisbane. He was 57. 
Just as he'd been forgotten, the hope that the entombed miners' rescue would herald a new era of better Italian-Australian relations on the Western Australian goldfields wasn't realised either. There were to be decades of racism, with the most infamous eruption of hatred being the 1934 race riots in Kalgoorlie, which led to three deaths and saw Italian and Croatian workers attacked and their homes and businesses burned. In the first half of the 20th century, the story of the entombed miner would be retold occasionally in the feature pages of newspapers like Smith's Weekly and The Argus. In 1987, author Tom Austin wrote a book called The Entombed Miner, which I haven't read but which can be found at a few online bookstores that sell rare and out-of-print books. A quarter of a century later, Italian filmmakers Valeria Messina and Daniel Gastoldi, who lived near Gorno, came to Western Australia to make a documentary about Modesto Varaschetti's rescue. Their movie, which is called My Name is Charlie, is available to rent on Vimeo and features an interview with Tom Austin along with some of Modesto's descendants. What's also interesting about this film is their visit to the site of the Bonnyvale mine and town, long since abandoned and reclaimed by the desert. While Frank Hughes was neglected soon after the rescue, I'm pleased to report that he did get his due in 2015 when he was inducted into the Australian Prospectors and Miners Hall of Fame as one of its heroes. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The show will return very soon. In the meantime, if you'd like to support Forgotten Australia, you can become a patron. As a thank you, you'll get early and original bonus episodes and the full audiobook of Australia's Sweetheart. A big shout out to these legends who've become patrons recently. Anthea Nielsen, Robin McMullen, Suzanne Kerwick, Simon Harmon, Jane Dolan, Jay Coots, Tiff, Alexi Polden, Teresa Vero, Brett Edwards, Rebecca McCann-Dillon, Barry Hampson, Laurel Backer, Wendy Kirstein, Meg Ross, Sean Radford, Sheila Spillane and Di Solomon. Thanks guys, I really appreciate it. For information about Forgotten Australia's Patreon, go to patreon, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Or you can get there by going to forgottenaustralia.com forward slash support. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.